Absolutely. Um, so I don't know what uh, what you've been. I think your um, your assistant maybe provided yeah. you a sort of idea of what I was looking for, or he did. So okay. Dex was telling me you had some questions, and I think some of them. Um, you know, and I will absolutely do the best I can for you. Some of them are maybe more CDC focused, and some of them maybe are a little bit lab focused. Um, you know, but absolutely, I will. I will help walk you sure. through as much as I can. Sure. So, um, I'm working on a story for Iowa Watch about uh, the, you know, some of the issues you just raised. The what's CDC, what's um, you know federal, what state requirements, etc. Um, And we were looking at variants. And so when I spoke with the CDC, let me just pull up exactly what she told me here. So I'm not not talking out of school. And I think this all started actually when the Iowa Veterans Home experienced an outbreak um, last month. And there was some confusion over different kinds of variants and what variants were reportable, etc. And I come back to that because I have a few very specific questions to that. Sure. I was just talking to CDC in general about reporting requirements. And, you know, I was told that there's a, a 300 sample threshold of DNA sequencing that has to be submitted by a certain state, any state, to make an assessment of what may or may not be an active variant or a new variant as a way to um, track any potential, you know, new new outbreaks of something we haven't seen before. She said that Iowa hadn't reached that threshold. My question is, why is that? Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. So, CDC is talking about um, their NS three, their surveillance strain program that. Yep. They may have talked you through. Okay, so they're talking about NS3, which has to do with samples that they collect from, like, commercial laboratories or other types of laboratories. So they're not talking about um, what's going on at, at state public health labs or our lab, for example. So what they're saying is that they receive sequences direct from this network that they've stood up for surveillance from other laboratories. And again, this is where I don't want to speak for CDC. Um, so this is sort of me explaining to you what I know. But again, I don't ever want to sort of overstep and, and speak for them, of course. But um, what they're describing for you is their surveillance network and the way yeah. that they get, you know, lab specimens right. from other commercial labs. And so mm-hmm. that's why they're saying that based on their surveillance network of commercial laboratories nationwide they're not hitting a threshold that they've set at 300 but that's not got really anything to do with um the surveillance systems or requirements or or network that we have in state the only exception is that um we ask that any sample that is done on an iom that's being submitted um you know to cdc as part of their surveillance is submitted to us as well i think what makes sense is that you're saying that that commercial labs report independently and what you're telling me is that IDPH and the state hygienic lab are not participating in this particular study because you're not a commercial lab so that's sort of part of it and this is um and again this is where i don't this is sort of directed for um shl the state hygienic laboratory who i think you've reached out to as well but um shl does submit a subset of samples um as part of their surveillance but um you know not all of them and that would be you know again i don't 
I'm not, I don't want to speak for, you know, Dr. Pantella and for the laboratory, um, but so they're doing, um, you know, in excess of, I think about 150 a week, they're enhancing their capacity. They were just able to get some new equipment where we'll be able to increase that, um, you know, and hopefully see a, a more rapid turnaround probably daily. We're hoping for about 30 a day. Um, but they're doing that and then sending a subset to CDC. But again, I don't want to, you know, speak for them. That would certainly be something you'd want to confirm with them if you haven't already. Right. But it's also, isn't it not, is it not your purview as the Iowa Department of Public Health to report, for example, I know their new area of concern is vaccine breakthrough tests. And that's yeah. on the list. So that's on their current list. After talking with um, uh, the state hygienic lab. Uh, okay, good. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to them and I've talked to okay. uh, the director. And they, you know, he told me that you guys, he is doing sequencing for yep. you guys, obviously. And that, um, you know, so far they're the only lab that is doing sequencing. Um, and so my, uh, you know, my question to him, and he sort of bounced me back to IDPH, is that oh, sure. this is the, you know, this is clinical specimen testing, and this is on across all CLIA labs. You know, I know the state hygienic lab is obviously a CLIA lab. This program has been in effect since November of 2020. Why don't we have 300 sequences uploaded yet? And is there a way to expand capacity to other labs? Absolutely. So I think it's 300 a month. Um, and again, I think that's the CDC requirement. I just don't want to speak out of turn on that. Um, and then um, we can clarify for you the subset, um, you know, that's been sent from our state lab. And what I can tell you is, you know, we're absolutely looking at ways to expand capacity, um, you know, not just with our state lab, but capacity to look at sequencing and not just for um, COVID. I would say that this is sure. one of the exciting emerging areas of public health epidemiology, um, you know, where we're all learning the benefits of this technology, but it does require quite a bit of um, IT support, right, and and also just training for, for a workforce that isn't used to interpreting this kind of information. So, um, you know, I think these are really exciting things, but absolutely they're things that we're continuing to develop and work on. And again, I think there's really good benefit here, not just for COVID, but, but really across the board for, for infections, you know, of all kinds, right? Right. So, but I mean, the, the, again, this program has been an in place and it was a 300 threshold um and i understand you're going to get it ramped up and i think that the guidance was like for iowa was based on it's based on you know uh population i think it was 10 per week that they were asking for in the beginning and so um i i think that the concern about that and i think you've answered it is that Iowa's getting ramped up to a point where they're going to be able to do that that i think that Going back to the concern coming out of the um, Iowa Veterans Home was that, you know, there was some uh, reporting uh, from the Marshalltown um, newspaper that there was, you know, there were some families that were concerned about there was a, quote, new variant. Um, and I understand now, I think everybody does, that it, you know, wasn't new per se. But I think that that caused a lot of confusion. So. I guess I guess that's why I'm asking yeah. about variant tracking because people are concerned about variants. No, and I I completely appreciate that, and that makes a lot of sense. And you're right. I think just like a lot of of pieces of this response, 
and probably of, of public health and medicine overall, you know, when things like that evolve, there's definitely a fair amount of education that needs to happen to help people understand, you know, what do these things mean and what does it change? Um, and, you know, we, we need time, you know, as scientists to understand that as well, you know, before we, of course, turn around and, um, you know, provide that kind of education. But so when we talk about, you know, COVID, and I'm sure you know all of this, you know, COVID as a virus, um, when it when it replicates, it causes mutations, just yep. like almost every other virus, yep. right? And that's going to happen. That's completely expected sure. for viral behavior. Sure. Uh-huh. Um, but you're absolutely right. Keeping an eye on which of those changes are consequential is really important, um, you know, and it's important to understand um, whether it has an impact on things like transmissibility, whether it has an impact on health outcomes, um, whether it has an impact on the effect of things like therapeutics or vaccine, right? Those are all the questions that we want to know. And we want to know that, again, I would say, not just for COVID, you know, this is what we do for flu every year, um, you know, is is look for efficacy and, you know, resistance to antivirals and all of those same things. So, Yeah. um, yeah, it is absolutely an important piece of what we look at and figuring out a good way to get representative samples, you know, that we can sequence, that we can share that information um, quickly and securely with the right people um, in the right settings. Um, All of that is absolutely ongoing work. And even, you know, you mentioned evaluating vaccine breakthrough, right? Another really important um, part of the puzzle that we absolutely are in regular conversations with other states, with our local jurisdictions, um, with our providers, um, you know, I'm, I've had the chance and continue to have the chance to provide some input on that through some stakeholder groups um, of state epidemiologists and through CDC to help figure out, you know, how do we make sure we've got a good surveillance network that's efficient, that's telling us what the changes are that we're seeing. And again, I'm sure you are well aware of this, but the biggest thing happening right now is the Delta strain, right? This has become the predominant strain in the region and in Iowa. Um, And so far, you know, thankfully the good news is that the public health intervention, the measure that we want everybody to take has not changed. It is vaccine. Um, And so, you know, the way to slow the spread of Delta or anything else that, you know, might be might be emerging, you know, the best thing people can do is get vaccinated. Sure, sure. And so I think that goes back to education. So let me bring you back to that point. Well, I do understand that, you know, with the Iowa Veterans Home, it's a unique it's a unique institution within the state of Iowa because it's Iowa owned and operated. Right. And so it falls under the purview of Iowa, uh, the, as in the the government admi- in the administration of Iowa. And so when you say things about, you know, education, and it takes it takes time, you know, frankly, it's been well over a year and we still have people who don't have the right language or at the long term care facilities that aren't using the right language when they talk about this. So I think that that that's another thing that you know is is concerning is that it's taken you know, there's absolutely a scientific process, but at some point, you know, there has to be, I would think, um, some sort of language that's provided yeah. across all stakeholders, including those beholden to, you know, federal mandates through CMS 
and other statutory language at the federal level, in addition to, you know, your own parameters as the Iowa Department of Public Health, as we see Delta, uh, like to your point, expanding. As far as a surveillance program goes, if we're talking about variants, why on earth are we shutting down the test Iowa? Why are we testing fewer and fewer people and shutting down the publicly accessible website? So those are those are concerning things when we talk about, you know, uh, uh, actually mitigating versus uh, responding to. Yeah, no, I, I think you made some some really good points there, Andy, and actually one of the ones that. Um, is resonating with me in particular is when you talk about the need for consistent language across settings and I I can't tell you how much and this is me personally speaking not you know representing the agency but I, I, I would just like to share I can't tell you how important I think that is and part of what has struck me is that um, you know, there's there's a lot of things that I think we can look back on and say we've, we've learned through this experience. Um, to me, I think one of the most important is about how we communicate in public health. And, you know, I, I think there's a real opportunity here to start to think about how we do a better job of engaging the right people to help, you know, really um, share those common messages and common languages in a much more efficient way. You know, I read headlines that say things like um, only X percent of people are vaccinated or people are hesitant or things like that, when instead what I wish I was reading was vaccines are the best way to protect yourself, right? Because that's the action item and the thing that people need to know and be encouraged to do. And for what it's worth, if you ever had thoughts on, um, you know, opportunities to, to work on that or to the things that we can do in public health to help equip, um, you know, others to have those messages. I think that that's just one of the things that I think is so critically important for public health at this point. Well, and I think that, you know, I don't know who is making um, decisions, but I think that being, um, you know, that IDPH has been, um, you know, and, and frankly, um, the governor's office has been just a roadblock with information. And, you know, I've talked to um, county health providers in um, southeast Iowa, in my own, you know, hometown neck of the woods in northwest Iowa, who aren't getting the support that they need from IDPH. I'm not suggesting this is you as a person. What I'm suggesting is that as the state entity, there is no uniform. There doesn't seem to be from boards of supervisors meetings where you have the public health nurse coming and being so concerned that she is getting um, no support or getting uh, absolutely torn apart by people that don't want to wear masks because of some of the things that the governor has said. At some point, the buck has to stop somewhere. And so the, the concern is, is that it's not my job or the news media's job to write headlines that are, uh, you know, compelling um, narratives on the, and I love public health, trust me, I'm a nerd, I would love to, but that's not my job. My job is to only be able to report what it is that's going on. And when a state health department or when any, any anywhere, when, when you don't get communication between, you know, <laughs> public servants who are being paid with public funds, you know, 
it, it's, it's, um, it's impossible to get, there's a vacuum and then there's a void and that void is filled with misinformation. And so the thing is, is that that leadership, it seems to me, comes from the experts and that's the Department of Public Health. And so, I, so I'm not sure what else needs to be done here um, as far as uh, messaging, but I, I would have to say that there's a concern about, you know, taking down the reporting, not publishing the reports, you know, uh, having the um, governor return $95 million worth of, uh, you know, lab expanding capacity uh, money. Those things do not inspire confidence, nor do they inspire good surveillance practices at all. The first and foremost thing is having an accessible database. So I don't know who made the decision to shut that down uh, or not report long-term care centers outbreaks. Like, I'm not sure what is motivating that contraction of already uh, a trickle of information. I mean, because all we've, all we've kind of gotten is a trickle of information. But that's the, that to me is the role of um, public servants. So I, I, I'm, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure why those decisions are being made or who is making those decisions. Um, and if some of those decisions might run afoul of some federal statutory language that comes along with like CMS and CDC and certain, certain kinds of funding. Oh, uh, no, that's an interesting, um, you know, that's an interesting point in terms of the, the public facing reporting, you know, what I can share is that it's not that we don't get those reports anymore. It's that we are updating them on a weekly basis. Right. So, um, you know, all of public health is still using that information and working with that information. No, I'm talking about to the people. So I'm looking at, like when I remember like maybe six months ago, I would go onto IDPH's website and be able to just really easily access information easily access COVID-19 tracking data. And now it's a little bit of hunt and peck. I called the state veterans hospital uh -huh. um, to ask them about crossover and what kind of uh -huh. oversight they had and stuff. And, and he said, you know, whatever, there's some regulations that crossover. And I said, oh, I was just calling because of the outbreak. And this again was last month at, ID, at the veterans home. And he just, he stopped and it was silent for a minute, and he said, I had no idea there was a, an outbreak at the veteran's home. And I said, oh, okay, uh, I'm just going off a reporting from the TR. And he said, because we see patients from the veteran's home. My, who, who's, who's on the hook for that? What are, the, what are the guardrails in place to make sure that people have the same information? I mean, that to me seems like, I don't know, I felt bad because I caught him off guard, but at the same time, I'm like, why doesn't he know about this? No, that's, um, you know, that, that's helpful. Well, but that's the thing is, is that it's a state, that, that's a state-run home is what I'm saying. And again, those were breakthrough infections, and those are the ones that are absolutely required to be reported directly from 
state hygienic labs to the CDC. You see where where this is problematic is that there's a public facing issue and then there's the behind the scenes issue of what's really going on with the pandemic in Iowa. Like I look at Minnesota, I don't know if you talk to folks in Minnesota about surveillance, but sure. their surveillance is amazing. Their surveillance and their wayfinding on their website is amazing. It, it's chock full of information and they report their long-term care facility outbreaks. I mean, that to me just seems like, you know, public health mitigation strategy 101 and, you know, kind of on the governor's, you know, she said that we want to empower Iowans to make the right decisions, but it seems to me that Iowans need to have the right information first. And I, I just, I, I'm not getting a sense from reporting Des Moines Register had a piece and then I think Iowa Public uh, radio had a piece about, you know, there's really no cohesive uh, surveillance strategy. These are valid concerns. No, I, I, I definitely hear you, and I, um, I certainly appreciate your frustrations for sure. Um, you know, and, and I, I appreciate you giving examples about the sort of situations and places that you think. Um, are, are most helpful. You know, I think I've, I've said this publicly a lot of times, but to give you a sense, you know, the kinds of things that I look at every day, several times a day, um, it's a lot of different things, right? Um, it's, it's the numbers of cases alone. It's the percentage, you know, positivity, which adds in a denominator. It's age spread, geographic distribution. It is settings, you know, where we have more vulnerable populations. It's absolutely our healthcare resources, right? Um, from the beginning, the point of protecting a group against a new virus is that you don't want to overwhelm a system, right? Like when mm -hmm. everybody buys toilet paper at the same time. So right. that's absolutely a critical part of what we continue to look at. Part of what we always want to do, um, and I, I really mean that, I mean, that, that's why I took this job, that's why I am still in this job, is because I think public health is that important. Um, and what we want to do is try and find ways to get all the information that helps people make those good decisions to them. And, and we definitely have made adjustments over time that I know are hard when things change. Um, you know, and, and when things change, it's, it's really in an effort to find efficient and effective ways to get people um, you know, the most useful information. And so right now, again, you're absolutely right. A lot of the work we're focusing on and working with our lab and with, you know, CDC and other states on is related to monitoring for strains. We're also looking at how we make this sustainable moving forward. You know, it's been a year and a half that we've had a public health workforce at the state and local level um, working really with, with, with no breaks, right? Yep. Um, and that is not sustainable. Um, and so we're talking about ways to help make some of these, this work and these processes, um, you know, more sustainable moving forward. And then, you know, at the bottom line, you know, at the end of the day as a clinician and as a public health professional, my mind is always going to 
what is the control measure? And the control measure is the vaccine. That really is the most important thing that we can talk about, that I can give people information on, that I can encourage others to encourage people they know to take advantage of. That is the answer. And the fact that we have not one, but three vaccines in such a short period of time, I would argue is maybe the most significant scientific breakthrough of all time. Yeah, um, no, I agree with that. Absolutely. Um, but, but I do think that, it, that, that surveillance strategy, the testing, you know, going back to the $95 million that, again, I don't know who made the decision to walk away from that funding for surveillance in public schools that that to me seems like especially since we know kids are often asymptomatic and we're unfortunately seeing you know across the country around the world an uptick in infections among kids and long-term you know uh, illness but that's you know in addition to the vaccine isn't part of it too doing surveillance so we, there can be early intervention in those cases i don't understand if you're empowered to make those decisions or if that's just, you know, potentially a political decision that's made in a short-sighted kind of way when we have school coming up at the, you know, in August or whenever. While I think that the vaccine is great and that, that getting it into communities has been something that you guys I know have been doing and, and, you know, trying to encourage people to do that. But there is the other side of public health, which is mitigation and surveillance. And so obviously vaccines are a mitigation tool and they're not curative. You know, there is the other side of that and that is the surveillance. So, uh, you know, the question just that, that I keep coming back to is just this, this idea of walking away from funding that could be utilized to empower local school districts to do proactive screening uh you know I, I so i don't understand that from a public health perspective i mean do you have any ideas on that because that sounds I, like uh, a really good tool yeah no i i certainly appreciate your question and i think um i think maybe the, the best i can do for you is ask if we can have somebody follow up you know for you about that um i would like to be able to find out from somebody who is in charge of the long-term care facilities there because I'm looking at recent guidance from the um, CMS about reporting requirements. And I do know that there's like, you know, they do their own reporting by and large, right? Um, and so as a, as a part of the CMS uh, requirements, um, I think that's right. I think they report directly. Yeah, yeah. So CMS has a reporting requirement, and they um, they have long-term care facilities report into a system called the National Healthcare Safety Network, yeah. or NHSN, yeah. mm -hmm. and they make all of that data publicly available on the CMS page. Yeah, yeah, no, they do, and so I just was I was just trying to um, see if there is anybody that oversees. I don't think. It's maybe there's like somebody that's on a, um, a state level there that does the long-term care facility reporting or management. I don't know uh, if you know anybody else, if that's outside of IDPH or if I just should go with CMS directly, just with yeah. questions on reporting and stuff. If it was a question about the CMS reporting or, or that kind of 
process for sure you know certainly cms but in the state of iowa you know the regulatory body would be dia the department of inspections and appeals um but but within idph within my division um you know we have a a center for acute disease epi and we have a a whole team dedicated to providing um expertise around healthcare associated settings so we do often provide you know technical assistance and um you know all that good stuff for facilities but if it was more of a regulatory question that would be dia I see on the IDPH website for long-term care facilities that is that the federal reporting guidelines for CMS at least is that they have to report if there's just one patient or yeah. one patient or uh, you know worker that tests positive, but IDPH considers an outbreak three or more people. Yeah. So, so what's the difference so- there? So again, you know, we're not, I'm, I'm not in a regulatory space, right? And um, certainly the, the requirements of, of CMS, you know, you'd want to confirm with them yeah. that, you know, yeah. that is what they're going for, right? Sure. Um, and, and there's a couple of different things to think about. One is, you know, um, what do you do if you have one infection? What do you do if you have an outbreak? What do you do if you have one person who's sick, but you might not know what they're sick with? Right. right. Um, and so we always provide support to facilities in any and all of those situations, right? Our goal is to help, you know, make sure that people have the support that they need regardless of what's going on. But when we talk about defining an outbreak, you know, in epidemiology, um, often what you'll hear is people will define an outbreak as anything above baseline, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the next question is, well, what does that really mean? So we talk a lot about, you know, how you, you truly call something an outbreak, something that is above expected baseline. And so for long-term cares, we took an approach that we've used in flu for a long time and said that three cases among residents make us very confident, right, that this isn't a one-off. It's not just reflective of community activity. Um, It means that we now are at a level where we believe that there is transmission that is associated with that setting, that it's not necessarily, you know, just because of a series of encounters that people have had, Uh you know, in other settings. So the the goal of thinking about an outbreak in that in that way, right, is to try and have a level of confidence that you think there's something going on again, transmission in a setting versus in a community or other one offs, but it it doesn't change what you do, right? Right, right. So whether you're talking about one case or three cases or no diagnosis, just somebody who's sick. Um, our recommendations around infection control and the support that we offer um, and the control measures and preventive messages that we have about being vaccinated ahead of time, right? Those all hold true, and we always provide those no matter what level somebody's at. I don't want to keep you. I mean, you've been given, you've been very generous with your time. The Test Iowa sites are coming down. I think I understand that correctly versus people being able to go to their providers, etc.? Yeah, so I think what we've seen, you know, over time at the beginning of this experience, right, there were a lot of limitations and resources, unfortunately. Um, and one of the things that, you know, I, I think our state hygienic laboratory did 
really well was was stand up capacity really quickly you know they've offered a a significant amount of support for the state um you know throughout this response which has just been really important um especially you know for people who might not have had a provider or who might not have had another way to um you know get testing which is so important and so and now are people being made aware of those tests because once because you make a really good point because a lot of people don't have maybe providers you know I do know that you know Iowa has like 380,000 disabled now that doesn't mean they're all incapacitated but if you look at even like the disabled community like how how are these people going to get access to testing Uh is that something that's being actively um, pursued is there like some sort of uh, uh, strategy to get those into people's hands and make sure they know how to use them Yep, so we're working on, you know, again, all of this takes some collaboration and development, but yeah, we're absolutely working on ways to increase the awareness and knowledge about the at-home, you know, COVID testing in particular, Um, you know, and we'll do that through the state, through the lab, um, through stories that people write, through the partners who will be pickup sites through our local public health partners, Mm -hmm. through clinicians, you know, hopefully through social media, through word of mouth, um, you know, all of those ways. Um, but absolutely, we will be looking for ways to sort of get that message out. And then, like I said, we're also going to be looking for ways to leverage those lessons learned and those processes for for other public health issues. Um, and then, okay, so that was that's pretty clear. And then uh, test locations, you're going to be the update updates on the website are going to be just is that once a week on Thursdays? Is that right? Yeah, it's once a week Wednesdays. Wednesdays. Okay. Am I understanding the reporting correctly that there's not going to be uh, any sort of notification of long-term care facility outbreaks? So there is still a card under the um, positive case analysis page that says the number of long-term care facilities. So Mm -hmm. this is pretty similar. I don't know if you've seen the flu reports that the agency puts out every Friday. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really quite similar, right? The same types of things that you'll find in that report are actually all the same components that we've talked about with COVID, which makes perfect sense, right? These are respiratory viruses. So again, you know, increasingly we're looking at ways to learn from other diseases and past systems to improve and sort of leverage the resources and lessons learned with COVID to start to create more of a sustainable approach moving forward. Um, but I will absolutely say, just just like I think I've said a million times, and I, I, I mean it, if things change, we'll, we'll adjust. You know, yeah. if, if there's a reason to, to change what we're doing or how frequently or, or that sort of thing, um, you know, we absolutely will make those changes. Now, do you not think that we're on the cusp of that, though, in Iowa? With, I mean, I'm looking at Missouri like, oh, my God. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like there's some regional concern, right? Um, yeah. No, and we definitely, you know, I have several calls a week, um, you know, with other partners, other states, other federal partners. I know that the director does as well and many others throughout the department. So absolutely keeping an eye on what's going on. Um, and not just not just with our neighbors, right? Um, and not even just nationally, you know, this, this pandemic truly was a, a representation of the way that the global community is impacted together, right? Um, and as long as there are um, challenges 
in other places, there's always going to need to be readiness and capacity, you know, for us, right, because of how people move and travel and all of those good things. So, you know, I guess what I'm getting at here is it's absolutely something we want to keep an eye on. We look at several things. And again, one of the really important things lately is keeping an eye on our healthcare capacity. Um, but, you know, the, and I don't mean to sound like a broken record, the best thing anybody can do at this point is get vaccinated. And if I, you know, mm-hmm. any, if I can take any chance I can to, to encourage somebody who hasn't yet to do that, that's the thing that, you know, that's the public health control measure. That's it. You know, do you have any sort of, as the, as an epidemiologist, do you have any sort of threshold? for, again, I know that it's a mixture of, there's an equation there that you have to do between hospitalization, but looking at it from a Iowan sitting on their couch perspective, Mm -hmm. all they care about is whether or not there's a variant that's on, Mm -hmm. you know, and having that information to protect themselves. One of the other questions I wanted to ask you is that, you know, when when Governor Reynolds signed the, the, the mask law that said that there can't be mask regulations implemented, um, she, I mean, that is a critical tool in combating COVID-19, a critical, critical tool that we know exists. I mean, how on earth is that helping you do your job or overall Iowans and also, you know, posing with the two moms who claim that, you know, staff infection, that masks cause staff infection. That's not the public messaging that says, here's what you need to know to be healthy. That's misinformation. And I know that you aren't the governor, but I don't know how that positions the IDPH to be a voice of of authority on any on on these matters. I mean that can't have helped. Yeah, no, I um I I hear your frustration and I But it's again, not my I... frustration though. I mean this is at some point it becomes a, an ethical situation, right? For for doctors and and for you know lab technicians like it becomes an ethical question of of you know what's right versus misinformation like to me that's pretty clear for me personally but i mean i'm reading it all over the place in iowa too it's like you know you got QAnon people which is no joke i mean it's you know the the surgeon general came out and said that misinformation is going to get people killed I don't under I don't understand how IDPH can be empowered to do um, the next right scientifically valid thing when that exact same politicking is going on that sends an absolutely atrocious message about public health. That's just it's disinformation. Ultimately, that's not down to me. You know, that's down to the people who are going to you know be running for election or frankly, doctors like yourself. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you balance that. I I don't know how you balance that and separate that as a as a person that took an oath, whether it's you or anybody. I don't it doesn't matter. I'm just I'm making the, the statement that this disinformation 
it's within the power of, of actual medical professionals to come out forcefully against that. And I don't see any of that coming out of Iowa. I just don't. So, you know, I, I know that, and I appreciate that you want to do what's best for people, but at some point, you know, isn't what's best for people just telling them the truth that that's absolute nonsense. And that's, you do not get staph infection from masks. I mean, yeah. So, is you it know, not? I think you're, you're absolutely, um, you know, I think you're absolutely identifying a lot of the challenges that a lot of people, you know, have, have noted, right? Um, and again, um, what I can tell you is every time I'm asked, I continue to um, extol the, the value of face covering, social distancing, staying home when you're sick, and getting vaccinated. Um, you know, the scientific and, and medical advice that I've provided and that our local health departments have been providing. Um, you know, we do everything we can to make sure people, when they come to us, are, are getting those messages. And I, um, you know, I, I know that there are, there are other, you know, pieces of the puzzle, right, outside of public health alone, certainly on this. Well, it's political. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very, that was a, I'm not talking about you, but that there's some very, very distinct politicking going on. And, and with that specific example, um, that I think is, you know, masks don't cause staph infection. I know that. No, they don't. That's absolutely the advice, you know, that, um, that I would provide as well. Um, and again, I, I think that what I can say is um, there are so many really good people in public health Oh, good, Iowa, yeah. Of course um, there are. And they, they've been working so hard for so long. Mm-hmm. And I, I know that it doesn't always get seen. I know it's not always clear, but there are a lot of, of wonderful people who have made just really significant sacrifices, you know, personally and professionally over the past year and a half. Um, and we're not going to stop because yeah. we believe that it's important. Well, and I know, I personally know some doctors and, and people working in some of the rural counties that have gotten death threats because of their, their insistence yeah. on science. When there's such demonstrably false information being peddled by people in positions of incredible power, like, you know, a governor or some of uh, Iowa's representatives or senators, I can't imagine how demoralizing that would be to uh, my friend who works in um, Black Hawk County in a public health clinic. You know, when I think about that, I, I watch a lot of board meetings where a lot of public health nurses are just absolutely floored at the way that they're treated, but it's because of disinformation. You know, I don't know how you deal with that as a public health official. Yeah. No, Andy, again, I, I, I really do appreciate um, the conversation and the time today, and I apologize. I've missed one meeting and I'm going on my second so I, I am going to have to um, I am going to have to go shortly but yeah, no, I do want to say fine. thank you and, and I you know I, if I could leave you with anything it would be there really are some wonderful people in public health who um, never stopped working and are not going to stop even when it's hard and even when it's not perfect because we believe that it's important work and we so appreciate the chance to get you know good messages out there so thank you 
Okay, well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Likewise. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye.